This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel on special assignment in Jamestown, New York for the 2023 Lucille Ball Comedy Festival presented by the National Comedy Center. We've been invited to set up a studio offstage at the late night showcases. So coming up, we will feature comedians Tony Deo, Ashley Austin Morris, Adam Mamawala, Turner Sparks, Sarah Tolomash, and John Laster. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, or captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La 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 la. Kick things off, I'm able to grab a moment here with Executive Director Journey Gunderson to share a little bit about what's going on in Lucille Ball's hometown. Thank you so much for being here, Pat. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here. And I'm excited. It's also the fifth anniversary of the National Comedy Center. It's kind of nuts to be five years in to making Jamestown uh, the nation's official cultural institution dedicated to this craft. And the festival, the Lucille Ball Comedy Festival, in a way has been making Jamestown a destination for comedy for more than 30 years. So it's not like we didn't have some groundwork laid, but uh, it's such a great experience now for people that a trip to Jamestown can include a visit to this museum by day and then the best of live performance in the evenings. I do think it embodies everything that Lucille Ball had in mind when she said to Jamestown, make it a destination to celebrate this art form. It's cool that you had George Slaughter here the other day uh, doing a book signing and you've put the new Caroline's exhibit in. I was here a year ago when you did the immersive Johnny Carson exhibit put in. So this is the evolution is constant. It's growing and growing. George Schlatter and his wife Jolene Brand Schlatter were here at the grand opening in 2018. And of course, George Schlatter, legendary ambassador for comedy in so many ways, having created Laugh-In. Lily Tomlin said to us, when I was doing my characters in offices, sitting across from agents, and they stared at me like there was something wrong with me, George Schlatter was the only one who said, yes, I want all of your characters. So he really put Lily in front of audiences uh, on television for the first time, discovered Goldie Hawn, the first to put Robin Williams on television, and also was the first person to say that comedy as an art form should come together as a community and have a dedicated awards program with the American Comedy Awards. So. It's arguable there hasn't been somebody who has been such an ambassador for comedic artists as George Schlatter has been. And of course, Jolene Brand Schlatter was on uh, the early days of the Ernie Kovacs show, one of the most innovative things that comedy has ever seen. Yeah, and it's all here happening in Jamestown at the National Comedy Center. We are sitting in the new room of honors and distinction, which show off some of those comedy awards that you just mentioned. And we're gonna head now to the late night to hear some of the comics that are being showcased this year. And we're gonna give you a little taste of one right now. Over the pandemic, I was like a lot of people, I did not eat very well. I decided if this is the end of the world, I'm going out full. <laughs> And I put on 30 pounds, which a lot of people can wear an extra 30 pounds. I'm not one of those people. An extra 30 pounds on this frame, I looked like a python that swallowed a pig. <laughs> but I had to go to the doctor for my annual physical, and he told me I needed to lose some weight. So I put myself on a little bit of a diet, and here's what I learned. When you're trying to lose weight and you step on a scale, there's no such thing as too naked. <laughs> I get birthday suit naked, that's step one. 
Then I take my contacts out. <laughs> Blow my nose, trim my fingernails. <laughs> go to the bathroom. Exhale as hard as I can. <laughs> then I get on that scale. That was comedian Tony Deo. We have him here hot off his set from the Tropicana Club at the National Comedy Center's Lucille Ball Comedy Festival. Welcome, Tony. Thank you so much for having me, Pat. Why don't you start us off by describing what it's like to perform in the Tropicana Club? I love it in there. You know, from your years of being in comedy clubs and things, there's certain things that make a good room. And it has low ceilings. People are packed in tight. And it just... When they laugh, you hear all the laughs. We don't lose laughs into a 30-foot ceiling or anything like that. Right. And it's a recreation of Ricky Ricardo's Tropicana Club yes. with the bandstand. So I noticed there were instruments on stage. Yeah, there's saxophones <laughs> and clarinet and a drum set. Which kind of are in the way for a comedian, aren't they? Yeah. And if you're ever bombing, you would for sure want to go to the instruments and see what you could do with them. But they do have a sign that says, look, but don't touch. And you're also a veteran of the... National Comedy Centers, having performed in a lot yes. of different places. So tell me about your relationship with them and how much fun it is to be a part of the history here. I first started coming here 11 years ago, and there was no National Comedy Center at the time. It was just the Lucille Ball Comedy Festival. I came, I met Journey and Malachi were here at the time, and they're the best people. And I feel like I became friends with them, but I think they become friends with everybody because they're such nice people. And I just started coming back. And I do remember Journey telling me that she had this idea for a comedy museum. And it's not the first time she would have heard it, but I did not believe she could pull it off. And it's not because I don't have faith in her or anything like that. It's just, it seemed like such an unbelievable undertaking to somehow collect and put a museum together that honors comedy the way this one does. And the first time I came here was when they opened the doors and opened the museum, and I got emotional that they had pulled it off. It was crazy. They'd done such a good job with it. And it's my favorite place in the world. Every time I come here, I spend hours and hours and hours in the museum, and I never run out of things to see, and it makes me laugh every time. I sat with Tucker today in the movie screening room and playing clips from the movies. About a month ago, I was here for another show, and I sat in the TV area, because I grew up watching sitcoms, and I just sat there for hours <laughs> watching different clips from TV shows and people talking about making sitcoms, and I really, I love it here. Now, 10, 11 years later, you have an opportunity to take your son, who yes. is named after Johnny Carson. Your yes, son's name is. is Carson, and you went as a family to the museum. Yeah, yeah. Tell me what that experience was like. We came this summer, and I couldn't wait to bring them here because... My wife and my son had not been here yet, and he loved it as much as I hoped he would. Because when we think about nature versus nurture, I feel like he loves comedy because I'm a comedian, and he loves listening to comedy. And we do it all the time, and he, he has his favorite comedians. He loves Brian Regan, and I've started playing him Nate Bargatze recently. He loves Nate. We were watching a special the other night. He loves The Simpsons, so there was a section about cartoons and animation, and he got to see some sketches of Homer. He had a great time. Now, did he get a chance to try the comedy karaoke area? With he a, did. Did he use a Brian Regan routine? No, he didn't. In the stand-up area, we were watching different comedians, and Jeff Foxworthy was on there and talked about 
he did a couple of jokes of that you might be a redneck, and it just made Carson laugh so hard. And we got down to the comedy karaoke, and that Foxworthy bit was one of them he could do. He did such a great job with it. How old is he? He is nine years old now. Okay. That must have been hilarious to watch him do You Might Be a Redneck. Yeah. Jokes that I was listening to when I was not much older than he is right now. But yeah, it was fantastic. It's so great to be at a part of this festival. And I know that you've had things along the way, but here it was, the late night sets that you were doing, and you kind of kicked this crowd off. How does the energy of the audience feel? They're great, yeah. I, that's actually exactly what I said. I walked in there with Adam a few minutes ago. I said, this feels like good energy. And you can tell when you walk into a room before show, you almost know how it's going to go <laughs> based on the chatter and mumblings in the room. Yeah, well, so we're backstage from that, but we're also on the second level up above the Lucy Desi Museum, which has the original Lucille Ball set. And uh, it was my understanding that it was Lucy's directive that a comedy museum that saluted even more than her built to honor all of comedy. Right. That's what she wanted. I guess I wonder for you, you know, this is Comedy's Hall of Fame, but you're a part of it. You've gone from being a comedy appreciator to being a contributor to now being a legend of comedy in a way. (laughs) No, to be invited to the Lucille Ball Comedy Festival by the National Comedy Center. It is an honor every time I get to come here. Is there anything you want to share with folks about the visit, like kind of one thing you would point them to inside the National Comedy Center? My new favorite area, and it won't be any surprise, is they have an exhibit dedicated to Johnny Carson. And he was who I was watching when I first discovered stand-up comedy. I saw Seinfeld on there before he had a television show. He was just a stand-up comedian. And I could sit in the Carson exhibit for hours just watching old clips of him. He was so great. It's an immersive theater experience. And so they have screens all around. And they even have a hologram of Jimmy Fallon introducing and really crediting Johnny for what all of us saw as the ultimate chop. Right. Right? Johnny was the great host. He was a great sketch player. Yeah. He was a good writer. He was improvisational. Every skill. And he did it so effortlessly that it was sort of like, man, I'd love to have a job like that, guys. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I don't know any comic that didn't want to be on the show in the day. Right. And then eventually didn't want to be him. So, Tony, tell me this. You had your television debut in 2013. That's correct. On Conan O'Brien. Yes. What was that moment like to walk through that curtain and be in charge of television for that moment? It was, as you know, very surreal. As a comedian of my generation, like that's where I first saw comedians. And that was the ultimate goal for me. You could look at people doing HBO specials. That was like saying I want to become an astronaut (laughs) if you want to do an HBO special. But... Getting on a late night show, even though the odds are still unbelievably long, it did seem like something that might be possible. And when you're there and the curtain opens and you walk out, I I can still watch it and my memory is gray from the time the curtain opens until I got out and finished like my first joke. I don't even remember that time period. I can watch myself do it, but the memory's not there because it was just too much for me. It's like the moment you fall off a ladder. Right. And you know you're going right. to hit the ground, right? <laughs> yeah. There's a yeah. period of time you're like, what? 
if folks want to hear more of Tony's comedy, they can go to TonyDeo.com. He's really great about recording and sharing stuff from sets around the country. And make a point to check him out along with all the other comics you're going to hear today because he's on the rise. Thanks, Tony. Thank you. One thing that was really good, though, so because of the pandemic, I got to move. I moved to the Upper East Side. I know, I know, I know. Everybody thinks it's so fancy. But right when I moved there, I got stabbed in the face with Botox. It was crazy. Okay, don't look at it though, because it's fallen out, but like, I need more, but any, and I don't know, like, does my brain eat it? I don't know what happens to it. I don't know. I hope I'm not getting dumber and uglier at the same, oh well, it doesn't matter. This is my interpersonal struggle. Okay, so <laughs> here's why I got the Botox, all right? Uh, I had five doctors accuse me of being bipolar. <laughs> And my friend was like, that's not an accusation. That's a diagnosis. You were just listening to Ashley Austin Morris, and she joins me backstage now. What was it like to be invited to be a part of this festival? It was so special to me. I'm the biggest Lucille Ball fan, um, not just for I Love Lucy, not just for her on screen persona, but also the fact that she created that show as a woman at 40 years old back in the day that she had children later in life that she insisted on her husband who was not white being on TV. Like so many reasons. I'm really inspired by her. I just felt enormous honor and gratitude. She was a savvy businesswoman. Holy cow. And yeah. instrumental in the development of early sitcom time. Absolutely. They were the first three camera show. Yeah. Tell me how you began comedy. Do you remember the first time you walked on stage? Yeah. As a stand-up. As a stand-up, yes. I started as an actor, and I still act. I had a long road with that. The first time I went on stage in front of a real audience was at Gotham in New York City, and it was just that thing that you pray happens every night where something else enters you. For me, it's God. And you're like, oh, I was woven together to do this. Like, it was, it was really this undeniable thing. Did you feel called to the stage to do stand-up, or were you dared by a friend? Or, like, how did it convert from acting to expressing yourself through stand-up? Yeah, so I had been an actress for a really long time. I never wanted to do anything else but act my whole life. An actor's life is really challenging. Like, I've been a journey woman actor most of my life. You know, you get jobs, you don't. You have long stretches of no money, you know, whatever. Homelessness, it's crazy. And I always was envious of singers because they could just go sing that night, even if they didn't have a gig. And so I thought comedy would be like that for an actor. And then I was doing this play that I just spiritually like shouldn't have been doing. It was really like not good. And I was like, oh, if I'm a comic, I have control over what I say. And so for me, my faith is very important to me. So it's like, oh, I can pray and ask God to help me. And I don't have to say stuff I don't want to say. I think that's great. Thank you. No, I mean, not just the faith, but the understanding that your voice is 
who you are. It's, yeah. it's your brand. Yeah. And if the industry wants something, you don't have to kowtow to that. Right. For lots of folks with Nate Bargatze and some others yes. who have a strong voice and a strong faith, the audience comes to them that's interested in what yeah. they have to say, right? Yeah. Once you begin to get that audience, the network and the studio they start to hunger for your audience because you're bringing that but it's a little bit hard sometimes to not want to be what the industry has approved before sure and I find myself slipping up all the time where I'm like oh I wish I hadn't said that yeah I love that I mean Nate's a perfect example he's just brilliant your voice is getting stronger the more you follow your own thoughts right yes. I know that you started off known for this role of Francine Carruthers oh. in the electric company no but that was early acting time yeah, yeah, right yeah. yes so now as a stand-up what's the nature of what you like to talk about I think I like to make myself the fool and then go outward right like I I always think if I'm having a very strong emotion I actually never feel alone in it I always go I bet other people feel this way and so I try to, to pick it apart and go, okay, what is this? Why does the crosswalk give me anxiety since they added those countdown seconds? It's like I was better off eyeballing it. Like, this is too much. Yeah, I'm an oddball, and so it kind of is like, why am I thinking everybody feels this way? But I think all humans kind of... Yeah, but as a comic, you understand that that little thing triggers you inside. Yes. And you go, oh, I want to talk about that. Yeah. Well, knowing that as soon as you get the barometer of saying it, the yeah. audience tells you, how many people either relate yeah. to it or have a spouse that relates to it or somebody, which I yes. think for observational comedy is the only way. You can't do it in a vacuum. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. So how frequently in New York City do you get a chance to go up and try new material? It really depends. So, you know, by the grace of God, I, I work most of the nights, and I'm so grateful for that. We all know that could change at any moment. <laughs> so I want to be very humble about that. It depends. Like, they're definitely not going to do new material on a weekend because those are, you know, it's New York City on a weekend. Like, that's the stand-up comedy in New York City. Like, you don't want to risk it. Yeah, you want to keep your position to be invited back as well. <laughs> thousand percent. But there might be like during the week, like there's a show that I host every week called Nice Try with Michael Costa at New York Comedy Club. And we do new jokes every single week. And it's like specifically for that. And it's pros coming in and being like, I've never said this. And the audience has so much fun. Well, that's kind of a nice thing too, because how many times do you feel like, oh, I can't try anything new. I'm opening for somebody famous uh, or I'm doing whatever those things are. Yeah. You never want to risk the new. Well, but I don't have as much impulse control as that. <laughs> I try. It'll you, come out. <laughs> you just do it. I don't think I mean to. No, but isn't that where your authentic voice is? Yeah. You're a funny person. You see things in a funny way. There is something when you have a gene, you don't always even know why what you're doing is funny. And you don't always know what you're doing. <laughs> you're just like, this is happening to me too. That's why I tell my husband when I get angry. I'm like, it's happening to me too. I'm hurting my feelings too. Oh, interesting. Yeah, like I don't know what's going on. <laughs> and it's, he's fully supportive. My husband? Yes. Oh my gosh, yes. Okay, that's a kind of a Miss Maisel thing in a way that yeah. that my wife's yeah. going off to tell jokes. Every night and yeah. about him a lot of times. Oh, good. Wow. Yeah. So does he then try to keep from becoming more material or you, there's no controlling you? No, because I always make myself the bozo. Like it actually is a very Lucy Desi thing. You know, my husband is... If you met him, you would think he's great. He's quiet. <laughs> I like that. You would think he's great, but I know no, better. No, 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 because I love him so much, but I mean, like, he's just, he's calm, he's quiet, he's collected, everybody trusts him, and I'm like, 
a mess. Okay, that's a fun combo. It's a good mix. Yeah. Well, if somebody was starting out in comedy, what would you say to them? Where would they go? How would they start? What would be the writing strategy? Like, yeah. is there anything that, like, some hot tip a, a listener might, yeah. you know, who was kind of new to it? Yeah, I don't know anything of how the business works. And I really mean that. Every single thing that's ever happened to me, I feel like God opened doors I never knocked on. Like, I really mean that a thousand percent. But one thing I do think is in your control, and I used to do this in the beginning, and I might even do it again, is I would call theater spaces in New York, and I would get a date maybe six weeks out. And I would stay up all night long after my little side gigs or, or waitressing or whatever, and I would write an hour of stand-up. And then I would have this night on the books that I had to have an hour of stand-up for. And that's normally not how people build stand-up. You build it five minutes at a time. But that's just what worked for me. And I did that maybe four or five times. You have tapped into something that I believe in. The date is a dream with a deadline. Absolutely. So it's a book report. It's a pay your taxes. Yes. If you don't have that looming in on you, you would never put it together. Oh, a thousand percent. I don't know how anything gets done without a date. And you invite your friends. So yeah. I always equate it to the idea that people put a hold the date for a wedding. No human being really knows how to produce a Broadway show. But right. that's what you're doing when you put on a wedding. Yes. And so you say to everybody, it's going to happen on this date. And then every day getting yeah. closer. Pick a caterer. Pick a thing. Try yeah. the cake. Get the food. Invite the mom. What dress? And people pull it off all the time. They do. And you know what I also say, especially to women, but I always tell my girlfriends, the men will ask. So if ever you don't want to ask someone for something, can I work this club? Can I do this? Can I Just remember, the men are asking. That's a good piece of advice. Because women, we really don't. We wait to be asked. It's important that we know that all the people in my phone that are asking me for a favor are males. It's a little bit more about intentionality. Yes. And I yeah. always say to people, declare what you want to be. Oh, that's great. If you haven't directed a movie, it doesn't mean that you don't want to be a director. And right. when somebody says to you, what do you do? You say, I'm a director. Yeah. I don't have anything in development right now. The next time they're somewhere and they say, do you know a director? I know a guy who wants to be a director, right? Yeah. They talk about you yeah. if you're declaring. And it's the same with stand-up. So if you're an actor and you want to do stand-up, then you need to say, introduce me as a stand-up. People love to put people in boxes. I know. And I say, label your own box. I love that. Well, if you want to hear more comedy from Ashley Austin Morris, go to AshleyAustinMorrisComedy.com. Yes. Thank you so much for Thank spending some time. Thank you for having with... me. Oh, what it's a fun. pleasure. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. You know, people help in different ways when you're going through a rough time. Some people want to offer money. Other people offer support. And that's what I learned. When you're going through a divorce, nobody knows what the hell to say to you. People try to be nice but they don't realize how what they're saying is coming off half the time. The one thing I heard a lot that year was, oh man, I'm so sorry to hear that, but you're a good looking guy, which is a very interesting way to tell someone, hey, just so you know, it wasn't your face that was the problem. It was who you are as a person. It could always be worse. Oh, baby. People love to say it could always be worse when you're going through a rough time. And it's always the same frame of reference, which I find odd. It's always like, hey, it could always be worse. I mean, think about it. There's people out there who are starving, which is also strange to be like, hey, I know you're awfully depressed, but have you considered thinking about famine? <laughs> that ought to lift those spirits. Those laughs are coming from Adam Mamawala, and he is joining me now backstage in the green room. Welcome, Adam. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. How did that feel out there? It was great. 
These people are ready to laugh. It was uh, it was a good time. Yeah. Have you been to the National Comedy Center before? First time was today. I okay. It. And you yeah. got to take the tour? I did. I didn't spend as much time there as I would have liked. I got to spend maybe like an hour and a half, two hours there. But as soon as I walked in, I was like, I'm not going to be able to accomplish this in one day. <laughs> right. Was there a favorite moment? Was there something, an exhibit or something that you came across that you were like drawn into? I mean, a, a lot, but honestly, the thing that, that stuck out to me, they have the backdrop of Caroline's Comedy Club, which closed this past December in New York. And that was the first club in New York that worked me as a regular and the first place I headlined in New York. And I got like unexpectedly emotional seeing it there. I've seen that backdrop so many times. I remember how thrilled I was to like stand on that stage. And yeah, it, it struck me. Obviously, the, the artifacts are incredible. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, I grew up on like classic comedy. Like my parents introduced me to Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton and Laurel and Hardy and like seeing Charlie Chaplin's cane I was like that's unbelievable that that's just sitting right there yeah so let's talk about the Caroline's thing though because I remember those early days where where I went up and you know you see it you watched as an audience member before yeah and so suddenly you get on the other side of it when you got that first opportunity at Caroline's yeah how did that particular first set go First set I ever did at Caroline's, I was still in college. I did a bringer show. Yeah, tell the audience about that, though, because that's a good, it's a great term, sure. the bringer show. So a bringer show, uh, generally speaking, is something where a younger comic starting out who wants to get stage time, in exchange for that opportunity to do five minutes at a legitimate comedy club, is required to bring X amount of people to come buy a ticket, watch them have a two-drink minimum. Basically, you're just cajoling all of your best friends into spending <laughs> way too much money to watch you bomb. At the beginning, it's comforting because you're like, oh, well, there's people I know, so at least they'll laugh even if I'm terrible. But at that time, I think I had to bring 15 people. And it was one of those like four-and-a-half-hour shows. I remember uh, a comedian, Lee Camp. I don't know if he's still around anymore. I think he got into politics. But either way, he would do this joke at the end of a set. He's like, you know how when you're a kid, if you get caught smoking a cigarette, they make you smoke the whole pack so you never smoke again? It's like, this is like that, but with comedy. Right. Like, we're going to show you so much comedy that you never want to go to a comedy show again. Right. Now, did you ever have to do the papering, the New York City, where you stand out and slap barking, the tickets? The barking. I never did. I did not. I don't have the stomach for it. I'm sure I could have done it, but I, I just I was like, I will find other ways to get around this. I'll do open mics. Surprisingly, as a comic, I don't take that kind of like direct rejection well. Like right. someone just walking past me like I don't exist. Right. I came from the Midwest. I had already been doing stand-up. When I went through New York City, I just felt for every comic I sure, saw out there yeah. slapping a brochure against their hand. And I thought, oh, I don't think I can watch this show knowing you spent the day out here in the heat just trying to coerce people. <laughs> it always makes you think of that great Mitch Hedberg joke about uh, whenever someone hands me a pamphlet, it's like they're saying, here, you throw this away. <laughs> <laughs> right. Good impression, yeah. too. Uh, <laughs> now, you do <laughs> some right. voices in your show. I don't really do a lot anymore. I've, I've wondered if there's a way to incorporate them in a way that doesn't feel like hacky or contrived because it's like sometimes you feel like you either have to be the impression guy or you have to choose a different lane but that's i early on i, I used to do impressions yeah. well your gps uh oh signature bit you're you, you're doing voices does that go back a ways or what so it's I, it's funny you reference that i'm guessing you you saw my wikipedia page is that that's possible? where we went just for fun i cannot for the life of me figure out how to get it <laughs> either updated or removed first of all i'm not even being self-deprecating i am objectively not relevant enough to have a wikipedia page in the first place i cannot update it i've tried to update it myself wikipedia takes it down how does and it then get they send me i don't know someone else wrote it but then they're like you didn't use the right sources i'm like i'm the source right i'm the guy we can't trust you yeah but they're referencing something from like when i was in college and i hate it Okay. Yeah. So they also referenced the college thing. Right. The New Jersey 
campus yeah, comedian but this thing. Doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. Right. I got to right. figure it out. Well, I've always thought that about comedians' websites. Not everybody, but that they're kind of like a scrapbook. Like, sure. if you go down a ways and they have pictures, oh, there's the guy getting his first communion. Like, like you go, <laughs> can yeah. you update any of right, this? Right, right, right. Yeah, let's set that aside. Okay, I'm not going to hang you up on the on your old Wikipedia page, yeah. which we will all go bomb with new facts. Yeah, okay? please. Oh, my gosh. The most handsome comic. You know, we'll get that stuff up there for you. Hopefully that comes through in an audio form. The most handsome comic in audio, we'll say. What is the area direction that you want to head? When you write, are you writing observationally? Are you trying to shine a light into certain parts of the world? I think increasingly my stuff has gotten a lot more autobiographical. Like that's the kind of comedy that I respond to the most when I'm watching comedy is people talking about their lives. And I think when I started out, it was some combination of impressions and kind of generic observational stuff. Now I still do observational material, but it's always how that observation pertains to my life, right? So I have a large chunk that I was just doing about weed, but it's not like about weed itself. It's like, what is my experience with it and why do I not like it and, and that sort of thing. But well, the stronger a comic's personal point of view gets, surprisingly, the more specific, the more people kind of connect to that, that some version of that moment. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I, I think it takes a maturity in writing to understand that the broader things, like, oh, go up and be funny. Like when you're young, you know, you go for loud volume, you go for... Uh, whatever trick you've got, mm -hmm. uh, if it's an impression, if you can juggle, they're going to like me. I think you care less about if they like you as you get more specific, and you say, how can I be a little bit more truthful so that my point of view, my voice is authentic? Because then no comic can steal your bit. A thousand percent, and I also think that it theoretically you're evolving as a human being and your comedy should reflect that, right? So like when I was 22 and I was doing a bit about having a messy roommate, like it might sound hacky now, but it was true to me as a 22-year-old. If I were doing that now, it would be like, why is this person talking about that? So theoretically, as you evolve as a person, your comedy should evolve with it. And I think like the, the themes are also more adult because I am an adult now. According to your Wikipedia page. Uh, your well, <laughs> I'm, I'm eternally in a 19-year-old on Wikipedia, but my most recent album was largely about my divorce, which is obviously like something that I wouldn't have talked about in my 20s because that hadn't happened yet. What's the name of the album? The album is called Statistically More Relatable. Ah, yeah. very good. Is it's that a, a Ghost Runner record? It sure is. Okay. Sure, and thank you for asking. Uh, no, I'm a fan of their work. They Likewise. recently produced an album for me. We're obligated to have as many Ghost Runner record folks on here as we can. Yes, you should. If somebody was wanting to come here to the National Comedy Center, mm -hmm. let's say you had to tell some friends or a family. Or, I mean, this is a little bit of a pilgrimage to come up for here. For sure. If you went and told somebody about this, what would be your one-liner? I'm going to give you more than one line. Okay, good. I have been to a lot of museums. I like museums. I seek them out when I travel. I think the National Comedy Center might be the most impressive museum I've ever been to. And obviously, I'm biased because I'm a comic, and it's cool to me to see a place that reveres comedy. I find it hard to believe that anybody would walk into that place and not walk out with a positive experience. Even if you're, maybe you're not into stand-up, right? But then you focus more on the artifacts or the, the TV and film section. It is the most interactive museum I've ever been to. I had heard it was great and it like blew me away. Did you get a chance to go down to the Blue Room? I sure did. Yeah. So the audience may not know this, but the Blue Room is sort of the salute to stand-up comedy that was words that you can't say on television, all of those kinds of things. But there's a place for it. And I, I think they have a sensor that kids with a bracelet yeah. or whatever can't get in. Like, it won't open the doors to them. Well, if you were going to give advice to a young comic who's listening to this, who hasn't really had the experience, 
of the New York City that you have, just in terms of maybe writing material and so forth, what would you sort of pitch to them in terms of how they look at the world? I think the main piece of advice I give young comics is to write everything down, even if it feels like something that's a throwaway thought or is not going to go anywhere. Like, you will forget it. So write it down. And if you try it and it's terrible, then you don't have to keep doing it. But write everything down. Don't give up on stuff too quickly because sometimes, you know, you go up the first time and it kills and then you, it never goes well again. Sometimes you try something that you really believe in and nobody responds to it. And you're like, no, 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 I think there's something there. But yeah, basically to just not get discouraged. Yeah. And that writing is very important. So get a, get a notebook for yourself because the Bermuda Triangle of comedy, if you go out and think of something and then don't write it down, mm -hmm. it drives you crazy. Like that's that great Seinfeld episode where you can't remember it. And then when he does, it's not funny. <laughs> right. That's not funny. <laughs> There's an impression for you. That's good. That's People are going to like that. And if you want to find out more, all your social media is pointed. Go to at adammamawallet.com. Mm -hmm. Lots of A's. Lots, a, every other letter of my first and last name. That's there you amazing. go. That's yeah. the easiest way to remember it. There you go. So look for him at at adammamawallet. All right. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right, man. Great. My wife's from China, and I lived in China for 12 years. I speak Mandarin Chinese. My wife speaks Mandarin Chinese. Her family speaks Mandarin Chinese. But they're from a city called Suzhou, so they also speak their local language, Suzhou dialect. So to review, I speak Mandarin, my wife speaks Mandarin, her family speaks Mandarin, and then when I go visit them, they don't. <laughs> no, they hear me coming, and they switch real fast to Suzhou dialect. And I can catch them because I know what Mandarin sounds like. I know what Suzhou dialect sounds like. And then I know what my name, Turner, sounds like. <laughs> They're like, oh, ni hao. Ni jue de ming tian wo men qu shi me di fang. Oh, bu hao yi sa. Turner lai la. Ha 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 All right, that's the comedy of Brooklyn-based comedian Turner Sparks. Great set out there tonight. How did you feel? That was a blast. That was super fun. Yeah, I was here in March. Every single show has been a blast here. Okay, you were here in March. Yes. So you have visited the National Comedy Center. Yes. Tell me about your favorite parts. Number one favorite is that thing where you watch a Seinfeld episode and it scrolls through the script. Have you seen that? No. The Seinfeld episode's on the screen, and as they're talking, there's a hologram on a desk in front of you of the actual paper they wrote the script on, and the page moves. The page turns as they get to the next scene and the next scene and the next scene. So you're reading, and you can also see where Seinfeld and Larry David crossed out a line and rewrote the line, and they're doing, George is on screen doing the new line. It's unbelievable. So I did not see it at the museum, but what you don't know is I was a writer on that show, no, so I saw those original scripts with them scratching them out. Did you donate these things? No, I did not donate oh. them. I have donated scripts before to fundraisers, and it always surprises me because to me, donating a script from L.A., that is just scrap paper from work sure. to us. But I understand why it's special and why people are emotionally attached to it. Now, in this case, what they do is some kind of projection, and they do it also with George Carlin's material where you can leaf through his notebook. Yeah. It's insane. I so mean, you can do that with the Seinfeld script. Yeah, awesome. Is if I'm like, oh, I've, I've already seen this scene. I want to watch something else. You, you can almost turn this hologram of a page, and the TV will flip ahead, right, too. Right. <laughs> well, that's it's really cool. unbelievable. Well, the technology of the whole museum, from the minute you walk in, they put the bracelet on you, and you have your comedy profile, is quite a unique experience. It doesn't feel like a dusty mom-and-pop 
Museum. Not even close. It's the coolest. So the first time I went in March, a month earlier I was in Cleveland, and not to just shit on other places. And I went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Right. I was very excited to go there, and then I came here a month later. This blew the doors off of it. Ah. It was okay, but it was kind of like a hard rock cafe. They had the memorabilia. There was no interactive anything. Okay. It was just go look at stuff on the walls. Right. Here's a guitar from Ace Freely. This place, so much thought's been put into it. The invitation to join on the Lucia Ball Comedy Festival came to you. Tell me your response to being able to come join everybody this week. I mean, it was 100% yes. So I came in March. My friend Paul Morrissey was recording an album here. And he asked me to come up and do the 15-minute warm-up set. And based on that weekend, I met Jeff Erickson, who's running these shows that we're on this weekend. Became friends with Jeff that weekend and, and a Journey and everybody in Malachi. By the end of the weekend, they went, hey, we want you to come do the festival. We'll tell you the exact dates soon. And within a week, they were like, okay, you in? I'm like, I'm, I'm 100% in. Was it in the same Tropicana Club? It was right here in this room. Oh, yeah. Wow. So I emceed four times in that room in March. It's an old glove or something. It felt yeah. great. Now, you're from Brooklyn, where I know there are just comics wandering the streets. Yep. You <laughs> run into them at the coffee shop, <laughs> right. everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of its proximity to all the clubs, how long ago did you move there? 2016. Okay. Yeah. And did you come at the behest of friends that said, you got to get here? Where did you come from? So I grew up in Sacramento, California, but my comedy career started in a place called Suzhou, China. Okay. As far wow. from show business as you can possibly get on planet Earth. That's really interesting to me. So how did you start comedy there? Obviously, in just English speaking. Yep. Okay. So I was interested in doing stand-up. I was living out there. I was 27 years old. I was running, this is a whole other story, but I was running the Mr. Softy ice cream truck franchise for China. <laughs> Instant comedy. There's a curb episode, a yeah. softy curb episode. So I wanted to do stand-up. I Googled it. There was nowhere to do it in the entire country. And I then like read some blog and a guy was like, if you don't have stand up in your town, congratulations, you're now the scene. <laughs> so I started an open mic, begged my friends to do it for a year until it caught on. Because otherwise you can't do an open mic, only one comedian. Well, so you have to have an audience. You have to have an audience. Right. Well, that part was easy. Okay. So there was all these bored expats who were working for Apple or Google or Caterpillar, looking for anything to do. And so that the show filled up. But we were terrible at comedy. We were selling out, and we didn't but, have. But five there was minutes. nothing to compare to. Over exactly, there. so we were killing. Yeah, the worst shows on planet Earth. And then I did that. I ended up starting a tour where I bring over American comedians, and I would MC for them. Ah. And we'd go around China for a week doing shows. Ari Shafir, Tom Rhodes, Will Sylvance, a bunch of guys. Yeah, Ruben yeah, Paul. Yeah. And then I did that for six years, and that's how I got better at comedy. And then I started touring, headlining around Asia. And then 2016. The Chinese government took my Mr. Softy business away, and I said, well, I guess I'm a professional comedian now. They pulled our permits. I did it for a decade, and I was six years into comedy, and I was headlining places where there weren't a lot of comedians. I wasn't like an American-level headliner. Right, still, but you were hosting, and at the same time, you were really producing the tour. 100% producing the tour. Yeah, yeah. So my buddy and I produced it. One of us would MC, one of us would middle, and then say Ari Shafir would headline. If I was emceeing, my buddy would be working the door, <laughs> right. taking tickets as I was on stage. The minute I was off stage, I'd run to the door, he'd right. go middle, <laughs> right. and then I'd go to the door, and then when he was done, I'd bring up Ari Shafir, and we did that for five or six years. Yeah, but yeah. that's how you make it happen, Yep. right? You yep. don't wait for a building to be built. You find a location, and you put the word out, and really, all comedy is cliff diving. People go, how do you get your start? Who taught you? I'm like, nobody. You just got to do it. As long as you don't hit the side of the cliff, 
You would dive again another yeah, time. Yeah, and even if you do sometimes, you know, big <laughs> right. deal. So I was learning from Jimmy Schubert and all these just killer road American comedians. Who, by the way, probably coveted the invitation to go see China in this way. They didn't have any kind of agent that was booking them internationally. We worked almost all directly with the act. Yeah. And were you picking people that you just, just like, I like this comic, I'll make, see if they'll buy into it? That's how we started. And then somebody like Schubert would come over, Jimmy Schubert, and he would go, this is amazing. I'm going to go back and he'd go back and tell 20 people and I'm going to get you somebody good. They would become invested in our success because yeah. all these shows would sell out. But we had American comedians who weren't known in Asia yeah. and they would be selling out for eight days straight at around Beijing and Shanghai and Chengdu and nine different cities around wow. China. And they go, what the hell just happened? You know, DC Benny was selling out. Everybody was selling out. Uh, that's great. And now you're hosting a podcast called Lost in America. Yes. What we do is we take a news topic, a global one, not American news, that we're interested in, but we don't know much about because Trump had two scoops of ice cream instead of one, and that's the headline, right? And then we find a comedian in that country, because there's comedy in every country in the world now, and that local comedian comes on the podcast, explains the news story to, over the course of an hour to us. So it's something that's affecting the world. Do you speak other languages yourself? I speak Mandarin, Chinese. Okay. Yeah, and that's English and Mandarin. But there seem to be three or four scenes in the world. There's the American scene and the, you know, American Canada. There's the British, Western European scene. And then there's the Australian scene. And then everybody else is the extra scene. And I was in, my first six years was in the everybody else. So it was Asia, Africa. I knew of Trevor Noah years before he ever came over because everybody was touring the same kind of circuits. I didn't know him personally, but I right. knew who he was. Ronnie Chang, same thing. And so my first hundred friends in comedy were not American comedians. So when I wanted to start a podcast, I'm like, I want to feature these guys uh, and women, you know? Yeah. And they're all hilarious. And they're explaining to you their news, how, mu how stupid their king is and how dumb their president is. Just what you come to learn is like, oh, everybody hates their government and hates <laughs> right. this. Well, I mean, you think about anything, the old trope of the idea that you could put a puppet show on in front of the king about the king. Yes. He, he doesn't really realize it. But isn't that the power of satire is able to get the public's approval against an authority? One of our most interesting guests, uh, Ukrainian comedian, continued doing shows. He still does shows through the war. And one of his earliest shows was performing for Zelensky on TV before Zelensky was president. Remember, he was a comedian? Yeah, yeah. He was a judge of like a last comic standing show. On, in the Ukraine. In Ukraine before he was president, and our buddy was on it. Yeah, so you meet all these. It's a lot of crazy stories. Cool. Well, listen, those that want to hear more or find out more about you can go to your Instagram page, which is at Turner Sparks. At Turner Sparks. I have two comedy albums out. You can listen on Spotify. Fantastic. Okay, they can find them easily on Spotify. Yep. Thanks for spending a little bit of time with us today. Thank you. I'll just tell you a story. In my early 20s, I was a stripper for about six months because um, I had a drinking problem. And, <laughs> and I thought that was like an easy way to make cash, but it's not actually. Like you have to work really hard and you have to be an amazing salesperson. And I just didn't believe in the product that I was pushing. <laughs> I couldn't get it off the ground. Uh, <laughs> So I would just hang out in the locker room and drink and then, and do blow. <laughs> and, but then like a lot of the more successful strippers would walk in and have so much cash in their G-string that some of it would fall out. And that was my passive income for the night. So who's the idiot? It's still me. Um, <laughs>
that is the voice of Sarah Talamash featured here at the Tropicana Club. Thank you for joining me today right off that set. How did it feel? It felt great. Yeah, I was a little worried because I started with a dirty joke, but it's silly enough that I, I didn't think it was vulgar. Okay. <laughs> that was why the choice. But, yes. But they call it late night set, so kind of they expect it, didn't they? They did, but then when you watch like, the comics before you and you're like, well, no one's really been that dirty. Right. Roast dirty. Those yeah, yeah. Roasts are firing squad. Yeah. They're like the last area of hearing debaucherous material. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and it's funny, almost like the word roast is no holds bar. Exactly. I think that's why they're so much fun. It's the last place that you can, both parties sign up for it. Right. Yeah. So there's no victims. Right. And it's just fun. And to say the worst thing possible. What's humorous to me about it, and I don't even really do a lot of dirty material myself, is that the course the main honored person signs up for it. They go, okay, this is the point. But if you're on the dais at all, you're going to get some shrapnel. But you know what I always like about roast? I think it's some of the best joke writing. Even if it is dirty, you don't get to hear that old format of like a setup punchline. Right. Yeah. And also it forces them to write on topic. If people say, oh, I wish I could just write about anything. Well, how about some boundaries that make it even harder? It really helps you to have boundaries. I always think that. I think when you have do whatever, you don't know what to do. But if you're like, here's three things, make it work. It's so much easier to come up with something, sketch or jokes. It's my understanding that you and your husband, Joe List, were signed up for a roast, roasting each other? Yes, we did. Comedy Central asked us. They, I guess they thought it'd be fun to have a couple. And then I always like roast from afar, but I've never done it because usually it's the first time you ever do that material. So you don't get to work it out. It's just the first time is on TV, but we were like, it's a money grab. So we went and picked up, we'll rip each other for money. Right, right. But we wrote the jokes together with friends and I gave them a list of stuff that I was like, we were both self-aware of that I feel like you can make fun of this and I think it's totally fine. And I felt like the audience was surprised to know what we were comfortable with ripping into each other about. So did you keep your writing secret from each other though? No, we wrote it all together. Oh. I think we were in Rhode Island doing gigs together when we got it and we were writing during the day and then we got his friend Tom Dustin who's a Boston comic to help us do quite a few. Okay, so it wasn't like secret camps writing against each other and so at least you weren't completely blindsided in front of the cameras. No, and I think that helps out. I think that's a lot of things with roast that a lot of people don't realize. It's a team effort. It's a show that you're putting on so I do think both parties, it's fine if they know what's going on. It makes it better and it helps you get a quip back when it's coming back around to you that can fit in another line in. Yeah. So it works out, I think, for both parties. Well, better. super fun. So let's just talk about what it's like to be in the house with two comedians. Yes. Do you fight over a premise if the same thing happens at the breakfast table? Or do you just both have your own point of view on it? I think we have different point of views or sensibilities. But there are times where I do ask him, I'm like, have you heard this? bit before because he'll hear around the clubs and I hear but sometimes you don't get to hear everyone's material so we do check each other in that way but I don't think we've ever stepped on each other's toes okay yeah regular comics if they're at a diner together you will see them all realize something at the same moment yes yeah. we live in an apartment complex with other comics and there's times where I'm like I wonder if 
that comic thinks that's his premise. Right. <laughs> so no. you have to ask, are you going to use that? Yes. Yes. That's really funny. I remember back in Los Angeles years ago, a guy actually, we were supposed to audition for some commercial and we were supposed to be two buddies in it. And the guy wouldn't run the lines with me. And I go, what's going on? And he goes, I just want you to know, I do a Green Army Man bit too. He wanted to be sure he got it off his chest. So if I later saw it, it wasn't that he stole it from me yes. from the Tonight Show or something. I've noticed that as time goes by with content anyway online, that a lot of the same stuff gets regurgitated, that I don't police comics at all, but I just say, hey, if we're on the same showcase, we have similar premises or jokes that we should be aware of whoever goes first, that the second one doesn't do the same. I think just that's for the cool. Show. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or it's so they cool don't bomb, they can substitute. Is touring something that you enjoy or do you like to stay close to home? Like what? I would like to tour under the most pristine conditions. <laughs> <laughs> right. Glamping. I want sold out shows. I don't want papered rooms of randos showing up. I want my own fan base. And... <laughs> It's lonely a lot of the time, so I want at least a friend or my husband, but I don't think he'll open for me. If you were giving advice to comics that wanted to make their way to, to reach a level that they get invited to the Lucille Ball Comedy Festival, what would you recommend to folks in terms of how they see the world? A lot of it, lately I've been anti-advice because there's so many ways to do it, but if I had to give a definitive, I'd be like, just work on your social media to get that fan base because comedy clubs need to make money and they're looking for butts in the seat. Yeah. So work on that. And then in the meantime, make sure your material is tight because there's a lot of people that get that success or like opportunity, but I don't think they can sustain 45 minutes to an hour. So you want it balanced. Yeah, and social media is the gold standard because it's the database. If a band has a Twitter following a million people and they can put 300 in the club that night, they will be booked. If you're complaining about gatekeepers, it's a way to like circumvent that and create your own business model for yourself. Meaning, yeah, you don't have to go by other people's rules anymore. You can uh, launch an album that way. You can do so much that way. And again, I know a lot of old school guys who are plenty funny, and but the notion is that they don't want to buy into the new media you no, know and they hate it and then i'm like but you're just gonna die <laughs> yeah it's interesting like i see the writer strike going on right now and they're picketing ai mm -hmm. now i'm not a fan of what's happening but you can't say well, we're gonna stop it, it you either got to figure out how to make it your friend. You're going to have to understand it enough that you're not the one guy going down in a boat with your typewriter and your carbon paper. And Well, and I also find it interesting, too, because AI, at least not online with materials, seems to be derivative. It's getting it from all sources. But then you're like, so is Hollywood. A lot of their movies are already derivative or TV shows. How many like doctor shows in high intense cities do we have on channels? So it's kind of the same thing that we do to ourselves. And let's say it about comics too, which is you're watching television, you're watching the news, you're reading a newspaper, you're aggregating this from other stories. Yeah, I've used it a few times in script writing where I had one character that he did stand up and I just wanted a simple dumb joke. And why knock my head against the wall for hours thinking of the perfect joke and they wrote enough and then I managed to fix a few and I was like, I can move on now. Yeah. Or a title, give me a witty title and so we can move on. Or get your ideas going. Right, when I was a punch-up script guy, 
I would see problems, like I'd watch a run-through, and instead of saying, this is the definitive joke, I would go, problem with this thing is they picked the wrong location. So I would just, in the, in the column, I'd go, funnier place. And then I would just move down. Then later that night, I'd just go, Greenland, Iceland, Monaco. Like, I would start to say, what's funny to me? Brainstorming with other comics, and then you get, yeah. that way you don't waste your time on, like, you have to move on. Right. Yeah. And the other mechanics is sometimes you go, it's not the joke. It's the story, which is the page. We got to cut all this, right? <laughs> it's not even going in. Yeah. yeah. And, and here's the irony is that you're usually going to a run through with other writers or other punch up people. And when the acting is going on, they're laughing really hard at their own joke to save it. And yes. you go, oh, that's worse than the joke not working. You being the only one laughing at it. That, oh, yeah. There's times I've seen like sketch or shows where I'm like, I think this made the writer's room laugh harder than the audience. <laughs> right. And because it's probably the 11th hour and they're just delirious. Yeah. yeah. Now, how do you feel about comics? Because we all we work a, bun a bunch of comics who play to the other comics, not always to the audience, but sometimes they're deconstructing to be witty for just the comedians. Yes. Are you a fan of that? I do appreciate it. I love the comics comic, but I also feel like if you only play to them, you're pigeonholing yourself. And it's not also just not fair to the audience. It feels elitist sometimes. When they're looking over the audience to the three people in the yeah. back, it's like, <laughs> I dare, you dared me to say that? I will do it. But it's always comforting when you eat it with the audience and you hear a few comics laughing and you're like, well, at least I got them. <laughs> right. I know what I've felt where the comic's laughing at something that tanks. Yeah. And you just, the pain, it's worse than going down with the ship. It's yes. like they're heckling you as you go underwater. Yeah, they're enjoying yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious about the future of the comedy empire for you and, and Joe. Um, I don't know because I'm about to have a baby. You're making your own either more comedians or audience members. Yes, that's true. I'd like to write a film. That's my goal. And then while I'm down with the baby, just online content, just to work on that. And then I want to do a special before the baby so I can just get that out there and then rest for six months. Oh, well, we will watch for that. So I'm going to send them to a place where they can find more comedy from you. Yes. And it's at S-T-O-L-L-E. E-M-A-C-H-E. Yes. Which is at Stolamash. Mm -hmm. And you can find more comedy and keep your eyes open for an upcoming film from yes. Sarah. Definitely a special before film. Okay. Let's watch the special while <laughs> yes. we're waiting for the film <laughs> well, to come film, out. Yeah. All right, well, thanks for spending a little time with us today. Thank you for having me. Did you stop drinking or you never drank? You yeah, that means it got crazy. <laughs> One morning I woke up, true story, and I rode over, I grabbed my phone, and the first text said, hey man, we praying for you. <laughs> I've never told this story before. Here, I'm not joking, y'all. Here's the scary part, here's the scary part. It was from Houston. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck is somebody texting me? I thought it was some bullshit, right? <laughs> Next text from, from St. Louis. Hang in there. We all go through this. <laughs> what did I do last night, yo? <laughs> Turns out, right, I'm coked up and drunk. And, and I was on stage at a show in Brooklyn. And they said I just started crying. <laughs> that was the voice of John Laster, who was hosting... Both the shows tonight here in Jamestown, New York, 
for the National Comedy Center's Lucio Ball Comedy Festival, and you got them riled up. How much fun was that? Oh, man, it was great. These people came out to have a good time. Yeah. And crazy is a lot of these folks are from out of town. So really? a lot of people traveled. Oh, yeah, at least 60% of the crowd. The last show, 70 on this one. Okay. Yeah. And you came from New York City yourself? Yeah, I'm in Brooklyn, man. Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, yep. Have you been here to the National Comedy Center before? No. Uh-uh. It was beautiful, though. We actually couldn't check into our hotel room, which is a huge pet peeve of mine. <laughs> yeah, I am such a diva. Anything else, I'm like, whatever. Right. Oh, can't check in. Yeah, I turn into, a, it's like those Snickers commercials. Hangry. Yes, where I turn into a mad person. So we went over to check out the joint, man. It was awesome. It's way more than I expected. And was there something that stood out to you that was sort of the zone of the comedy that you grew up on or something that sort of had a high impact? No, man. It's a lot of white people. I started on the hood circuit, so a very different world that looked nothing like that. You know, it's still dope shit over there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you get to the Blue Room? I did not get to the Blue oh. Room. Is that downstairs? Yeah. I was supposed to go check that out yeah. today. I mean, they got Red Fox. They got all kinds of folks ah, down there. How about yeah. that? Yeah, no, I didn't make it down there. Okay, well, that's worth a visit back, I have okay. to say. all right. Don't bring the kids. Yes. <laughs> Tell me this. When you're writing in general, it's about your life. It's about what you see. It's about how the world impacts you. Any given day, what's your perspective on what you like to write about? To be honest with you, like, I write a lot about my experiences, which probably some of them would go in what would be called the Blue Room. I actually used to do a show in New York City at a club that I used to work at called the Laugh Lounge. I've been to rehab at least three times. So yeah, I got some. So you're good at it. Oh yeah, I got some stories to tell. And I used to do a spot (laughs) called the Last Man Standing Spot where I would only tell those type of stories. And she paid me every weekend. She was like, yo man, this crowd only comes to hear you tell those stories. And there was like a group of people that would gather to hear me tell jokes about suicide and and rehab. And yeah, but is that where you began to find your voice, where you said, I can be authentic here or I can yes. tell it as it is? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was probably partially therapy, too. Yeah. <laughs> Who were the comics that impacted you growing up? I would have to say Eddie Martin. Uh-huh. I loved Martin. And then Def Jam. You know, oh. Def Jam was the first time that I saw people that looked like me on TV. Sure. We don't get the invitations to Late Night or really Comedy Central or any of those places. So HBO was probably the first place that was, you saw folks that looked like me doing the damn thing. Sure, sure. Which led for you to three seasons of BET Comic View. Yes. And that began to showcase your voice. Yes. That was my first outlet. That was when I knew that there was some room for me in the business for sure. You have a unique point of view. Oh, thank right? you. Comedy comes often from crisis. Absolutely. <laughs> right. So a lot of the good comedy. When I talk to kids in juvenile delinquent situation, they feel like they're behind. And I say, you're actually ahead mm. in terms of being a writer. Because I got up and put on my favorite plaid shirt and ate a bowl of cereal is not a great story. Right. But my dad kicked the dog is horrible, but it comes from a truthful, you can be the underdog. You can come out from under that. Tell us how you get out the hole. Yeah, yeah. People start rooting for you. Yeah. Yeah. And they also see times for themselves that were difficult or desperate or uncertain. Yeah. And they are laughing with you, but they're also relating. They're saying... That was the toughest time for me. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, you are an inspiration. And there was a comic once who said something about, I'm not a very good dad. And I said, what you are is a good, bad example. Right? (laughs) Like, 
Like, you're really good at that. Yeah. And he's like, okay. Yeah. That's inspiring. I can roll with that. Yeah. yeah he's yeah. like, I'll just keep being a horrible dad. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I was shooting for that. But I was just trying to put enough spin on it that it's yeah. like, tell us the mistakes you made and let us judge you. You hosted Underground Comedy Festival. Yes. And is that something that you were involved in developing or you were just invited to be the host? Or? Yeah, I was just invited to be the host, man. You know, these experiences, man, where you get outside of wherever you work on a regular and meet other people, man, it's just the best. You know, I was a ball player in a former lifetime. Going to basketball camp was the same thing. I was just at NBA Summer League working at the Comedy Cellar in Vegas out there. But seeing the camaraderie or being out here, I haven't seen some of these comedians in a long time. Ashley's on stage right now. I haven't seen her in a long time. You know, last night I saw folks I haven't seen in a long time, so it's great. It's an interesting fraternity. Yes. What I mean about it is, though, this is a very diverse show tonight in terms of voices. Yes. Kinds of voices. So did have a chance to talk to everybody. I waited to talk to you now because as the host, you carry this other responsibility, which is you're a great comic, so you get them warmed up, you go out there, and then you, you have to keep that momentum between every slot. Yeah. People don't understand how valuable that piece of the puzzle is. Oh, yeah. Because if you suck in the beginning, <laughs> every time you come back up there, it's like, oh, God, not this guy again, right? Yeah, you bring this show back to a screeching halt. Uh, yeah, I mean, you did a fantastic job in the first show, and I thought, well, let's not bother this guy until he gets one out of the way. Right. If you were giving advice to a newcomer comic from anywhere, in terms of the go for it, what would you say? I know this is going to sound cliche, but you really have to enjoy everything about it. You gotta love the whole entire journey. We all get into trouble when we think that once we get to this peak, it'll all be good, and it's not true. You'll get to that peak, and then you'll see another mountain that's higher than that. Then you start headed to that mountain, and what you gotta realize is most of the time is spent in the valley. So we're on planes, trains, automobiles, on stage for 15 minutes. Planes, trains, automobiles, and no matter how good your career is going, there's probably only gonna be four times where you get to do five minutes that could change your life. So there's four auditions, tops, maybe SNL, maybe to get into the comedy cellar, maybe something like Last Comic Standing, but that's only gonna be four times. So the rest of the time, you better enjoy it. <laughs> and I know people that have got all of those things and they're still miserable. Yeah, and you get to the top of some of those, or you win something, and a year later, two years later, somebody else has already won it and taken it out from under you. Yes, yeah. you really got to enjoy it the whole run. If folks want to hear more from you or find out more, they can go to social media at He Was Funny. That's a very simple handle. He yeah. was funny. Yeah. I tried to do He Is Funny, man, and I told this guy, I, I hit him up, DM'd him, I said, I'll give you some money. He said, no way, you'll pay me? I said, yeah, man, you name the price. He said, how about 100 bucks? I said, I'll give you 200 bucks. He said, you got to be kidding. <laughs> he hits me back an hour later. He said, man, my wife came home. And he said, yeah, man, we kind of get these DMs from these girls at night every night. And he said, so I know things are going pretty good for you. Uh, my wife said, how about 20,000? <laughs> they tried to extort wow. me for wow. he is funny. So I'm he was funny. Okay. <laughs> he was funny. Was not we're not talking about the guy who tried to extort you. We're talking about you. <laughs> yes, he John was Laster. Funny. Keep yes. an eye out for him. Thank you for joining us for oh, a few God. minutes. Thank you. All right. You're awesome, man. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe, and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing under the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. With additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, 
Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Stare.